Hello, my name is James McDermott. I'm a writer, teacher and 26-year-old cisgendered man. As a gay man, I love men, but as a gay man, I dislike men too. As a camp man who talks and writes about his feelings, I have always questioned stereotypical masculine ideals. As stereotypical men aren't camp, don't talk about their feelings and certainly don't create plays and poems about them. As a 26-year-old, I feel I've learned and unlearned lots about being a man, but at 26, still have lots to learn and unlearn about being my own kind of man. In this podcast series, I will talk with several people to explore masculinity, try and work out why we love and hate men, whether there are such things as masculine ideals, how creativity can help men explore and express themselves, and what men still have to learn and unlearn about being their own kind of man. In this episode, I am joined by Freya Gallagher-Jones. Freya, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So can we start by you telling us why you wanted to come on the podcast today? It's just something that is in our discussions in my sort of peers and friendship groups and even professionally at the moment is it's this idea of masculinity who benefits from the modern idea of masculinity and who, who's, who's being kind of oppressed by it. I run with a, a fabulous group of um, people who define most predominantly with the feminine, um, a moon circle. So it's for either women or people who identify most strongly with female um, kind of energies. And one of the really interesting sort of areas that we came across in our discussions were we, we discussed the topic of power for one of our sessions. And there was a real sense of kind of uh, friction between gender identity and power and how um your gender identity might define what you think of power and whether you're kind of uh, frightened of it or fearful of it or whether you uh, understand it to be a really useful tool whether you understand it to be something um, that's introspective and within you or whether it's something much more external socioeconomic and um, and uh, kind of uh, or, or race or gender or anything to do with um, kind of the, the differences between being a human um, and it was just a really interesting uh, thing that we sort of found tension in, in our group around um, whether you defined yourself as being more balanced between having feminine and masculine qualities. We were sort of more drawn to uh, understanding the internal power and those that felt much more strongly drawn to the feminine um, or identified that way actually felt that they were quite frightened of power because they associated power with oppression or with um with uh you know not having it not having the power so you know feminine uh perspectives understand power from a masculine looking at masculinity more often than not i think i'm really struck by that phrase of internal power and just that incredible strength of character that might come from that, that renders any sense of external power over someone somewhat redundant. Because if they have that internal strength and that internal, uh, that sense of being attuned to who they are, that gives them that mm. power, that's almost insurmountable by any external power. Mm, I think so. And I think that's what you get when you look at schools of thought like Buddhism or Stoicism or anything like that. You, you have uh, this sense that you can control how you move and navigate through the world 
based on knowing that you do have uh, an internal power, that you have a um, thing that is in no way related to what tribe you sort of join or feel most drawn to. It's much more to do with the individual and to do with how you um, understand the kind of world around you and how you look at uh, and assess those patterns and perspectives in, in your life. Um, yeah, I think it's it's a much more kind of introspective kind of power and has nothing to do with uh, any of the differences that we might feel as humans. I think the the big thing that keeps coming up with me and colleagues and friends predominantly is this uh, intersectionality and looking at intersectionality. We, we've been applying it for the last sort of five to six years to um, a lot of the other isms that we have in our life, feminism, uh, racism, and looking at the intersectional perspectives of people within those groups. But I think that that kind of real frictious look at the differing layers within male identities is something that we're really kind of behind on in 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 who in who we look at and how we assess what it means to be a man or to be identifying with the masculine in any kind of way or to, to be female and have masculine qualities um so it's really we've been really discussing about intersectionality and particularly class and how class affects um, what it is to be male and how your male identity is defined by that kind of um, big, big whammy uh, in, in um, your identity. I think class is one of the unspoken um, elements of uh, intersectionality that we don't think as much on when it comes to masculine identities. So why do you think masculinity and class have fallen behind in these discussions surrounding intersectionality? It's not necessarily that I think they're falling behind, but I just think in terms of moving forward as a as an entire kind of group of people, um, there are m many more people who have, or many more groups that have been very clearly oppressed for a long time. And it's quite easy and simple to define where those boundaries lie and who those groups are but when it comes into class that kind of feeds into all of the other areas that we look into and I think it's much harder to define and much harder to um, see where we've really gone wrong or or where we are failing groups of people um, because it's just not as clear cut as uh, systematic impressions of entire groups of people. Thank you very much. Is there anyone in the arts exploring masculinity and class who you recommend reading or listening to? Yeah, I think there are some really great voices out there at the moment. Um, but there are also some some greats from 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 past times that I, I really think work uh, in this in this area. Um, Tony Harrison, I think, is one of the great poets that really talks about the male identity of class, um, of being working class and moving into middle class and how that creates a real friction between the life that you were brought up in and the life that you are now moving into. Um, I think even old whammies like um, Thomas Hardy and how he looks at you know Jude in that in that way and, and assesses those systems that were built to make him fail and make him struggle. Um, I think there are some real old greats that you can look at but equally there are some really great new voices that are, are coming out. I think um, the Being Bad anthology by Nikesh Shukla really gives a really great perspective on everything from class, gender, race and fatherhood. I think that that's a really, really great kind of um, anthology for documenting a whole range of perspectives from, from a male perspective. Great, thank you. You mentioned uh, Tony Harrison, who I know is a playwright, but don't know his work as a poet. 
uh, and it sounds like his book would really speak to my preoccupations as a writer. Can I ask where you would advise uh, starting with Tony Harrison's poetry? Um, Bookends is the first poem, or it's actually two uh, sonnets that I, I would go to. Um, it's it's about the death of his uh, mother and the tensions between him and his father, but uh, it's really about communication and how when you move into being more middle class, more kind of... Um, educated degree educated you start to actually lose the ability to communicate with people that were from the class that you were born into thank you very much there's so much to unpack in there hearing you say that reminds me of a quote from grayson perry who said what really divides the country is those who have been to university and those who haven't those who have think of those who haven't as being less intelligent and therefore unable to discuss ideas and those who haven't been to uni look upon those who have with a skepticism and a sense that they're pretentious Mm, I think that's absolutely it. I think it, class is something that's really hard to define nowadays. It's not necessarily to do with um, the kind of income that you have as, an, as you're growing up. I think it's much more to do with education and, and education is the big key um, kind of tool to being allowed into talking about certain subjects, to knowing the language, to feel that you're kind of educated enough to comment on certain subjects and I think a lot of the frictions that you get from people who are defined as potentially far right nowadays are people who actually just don't have that kind of modern woke language or ways of thinking about their perspectives it's ignorance it's not it's not necessarily always from a place of hatred um and yeah I think education is the big one it's it's the big thing and that is what defines class much more now than than any other kind of thing I think Great, thank you. So speaking of education then, let's talk about school. And uh, can I ask about your relationship with gender identity around, let's say, six years old? Mm, yeah, so in, in terms of my gender identity, I am I'm cis female um, and I've never necessarily felt uh, any, any other way than that. But I've always had a real connection to um, real masculine uh, kind of personalities and masculine qualities. Um, and some of the ones that I would define to be much more positively masculine. Um, I, I grew up with some really fantastic uh, <laughs> kind of Hagrid-like, big, burly working class men in East London. And that gives you a real sense of like can do and, and can, can you feel like you're empowered by having those kind of people around. Um, so I definitely grew up with um, a lot of kind of working class men, but they were all the kind of working class men that really value femininity and value the positives of femininity and were quite angered by the plight of particularly working class women and the oppression that they'd feel and um, they were always quite protective but never in a in a kind of benevolent way it was always much more in a I'm going to protect you until you know and you're big enough and you're strong enough to protect yourself um, so I've always seen masculinity as as quite a, a positive thing. And I do obviously see um, huge amounts of kind of oppression that comes from the the much more toxic masculine side of things. But um but growing up it was a it was a real kind of empowering thing to have a lot of uh, males around you, a lot of cis men around you, um, who were potentially a bit machismo and kind of um butch and and of that of that vibe so um but equally I always saw the tension as we were sort of mentioning about education and how they understood the plight of of women and of people who had been oppressed but didn't necessarily have that 
kind of uh, intellectual Blairite era because it was in the 90s when I was quite young. So that kind of new liberal intellectual language that's coming around to express that kind of socioeconomic um, tension that might come from being a working class woman. They never had the language to be able to engage in those conversations. Um, so there was always a tension there in that you knew that these kind of men were really good men, but didn't necessarily have the language to be able to express why they were good men themselves. And you kind of had to explain to them as you got older why their perspectives are useful and why their perspectives are, are beneficial to, to the women around them or the men around them. Um, so yeah, in terms of school, it wasn't really uh, something I ever thought about. Um, but in terms of my home life, there was a real, um, a real male energy to, to growing up. To speak really beautifully and passionately there about your relationship with those uh, big, burly, Hagrid-like working class men who were giving you one message about gender identity and femininity at home. Were you receiving different messages about gender from that working class home life and your school life where you might have been reading fairy tales and learning potentially different messages about what it might mean to be a woman? So, I mean, I was quite lucky in that... um where I grew up was a really diverse area when I was really quite young um, and so you didn't just have femininity wasn't necessarily defined by um, what we might think of as western femininity it was there were whole hosts of people from many many different areas of the world who didn't necessarily speak English there were young kids I was in school with who um, I'd be partnered with who who couldn't speak English at all and their idea of femininity was very different from my own um, so I think in terms of the school system it wasn't necessarily that it you to you one way or the other we were quite lucky in that I think at the beginning of the 90s when I was kind of uh, really starting school it was actually quite a um, quite a balanced place to be at that time um, in terms of thinking about feminism and um, thinking about other kind of oppressive things that were going on um, but in terms of the perspectives there were it was much less to do with male and female and much more to do with nationalities multiple nationalities what their idea of being a little girl is even to the extent of you know you might wear those little butterfly hair clips in your hair but equally there would be a muslim girl who would be wearing a head covering and uh, your idea of femininity was different to her idea of femininity and vice versa with uh, with with boys in the class it would be different so it it wasn't necessarily a tension between um maleness and, and femaleness or femininity and masculinity but much more just perspectives as a whole um, and the area that I grew up in was actually quite predominantly working class so there was never really a class tension in 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 the education system that I was in just because everyone was kind of working class together. <laughs> I think that moves me so much to hear that you were in a class with such diversity. Were you in that classroom aware of your differences at six years old or were you all completely blinkered to those differences? Pretty much blinkered, I would say. I mean, I was actually the only um, English white girl in my class at, at that time, at that age. Um, so it was a really diverse class. And it just, you just didn't, you just didn't see at that age. It was just, they were all your friends. You know, you didn't really um, see the duality. You knew that people had lots of different kind of uh, languages or perspectives or 
um, customs that they might do. And you were excited. Well, I was definitely excited to learn what those customs were. And we were really taught that, you know, if you are inquisitive, if you're an inquisitive mind, that you would benefit by learning about other people's cultures. And that includes both masculine and feminine cultures. If you can be open to sitting down and playing with a little boy while he plays with cars, you'll probably learn something really interesting about him and he will learn something interesting about you. So um, I felt like it was a really, for me anyway, a really fruitful environment for uh, those kind of perspectives. So let's talk now then about how your relationship with gender and class had changed by, let's say, 16. Uh, Were you suddenly aware of your differences as a person how had puberty and education, wider reading, changed your understanding of gender and yourself? Mm. So as I sort of moved into into my sort of later teens, um, I, I think attention to activism was a really big thing that changed um, my perspectives, um, particularly things like feminism, um, things like uh, stoicism. That was a really big thing that I started to learn about at that age that... Um, was really interesting to me and it was also a a school of thought that was particularly grounded in in maleness or we were at least told the first iteration I'd heard of stoicism was in relation to kind of those um world war one world war two poets that were you know stiff upper lip and that was my understanding of stoicism that was a really kind of potentially toxic masculine school of thought is what we were told um and so that's when I definitely started to think that potentially masculine identities and feminine identities might have really quite different ways of thinking about the world, which isn't necessarily true, but when you're 16 and you're coming into learning about these kinds of schools of thought, you, you do start to think that um, that there are inherent differences in uh, the perspectives that you have around you. And that doesn't necessarily have to be to do with gender, but just that, um, you know, there are potential predispositions that you might have to thinking a certain way or feeling a certain way um so yeah at 16 I think that that was the big thing that started to change my perspective on on how I viewed uh, particularly masculinity um it stopped being something that you know was free and you stop kind of being as much of a tomboy or running around or you kind of calm down and you learn to channel into your empathy which you're told as a woman you have to really hone in on um but it's not inherently a female thing it doesn't have to be an inherently female thing um and at that age you you just don't quite know how to how to understand it I think so how did that reading and thinking about stoicism then and uh, feminism and gender theory affect your actions and relationships with people yeah I think um in in sort of late teens early 20s it was it was also the real height of the kind of mental health movement and understanding mental health so putting aside things like stoicism and looking at um mental health awareness and, and all of those kind of things it was very much um you know talk about your problems and show empathy for everybody and let people uh you know encourage particularly people that might identify as um with with the masculine let them know that it's okay to talk about things which you know is it at that age I definitely thought was anti-stoic which I don't necessarily think is the case now um but you also start to see the other elements of of class coming back to class where 
um, you suddenly realize how it feeds into your adulthood and how where you were at a certain age, um, where you are at a certain age in your life, if you're from a different class background, is really going to be quite impactful to to where you can move and what you can do and how you can move forward. Um, and that was so very apparent in in the young male working class people around me and what they felt that they could do and where they felt they could move into and almost a sense of hopelessness of knowing where you fit in the world because you haven't necessarily had that education that other people have had you've not necessarily had the tools to be able to get experience in areas that you might be passionate about because of financial implications or you know um, just perspectives you might have not been told that you can go to university or that you can go into that um, that training opportunity or, or whatever so yeah I think um, at that sort of age it, it's really when you start to feel kind of a sense of a chaos around identity and around um, where you personally fit and also where the people around you fit. Thank you. So you mentioned university there. Were your working class parents supportive of you going to university? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one thing that was always kind of an absolute necessity from my family was that I went to university. My dad is completely illiterate. He can't read or write. Um, and my mum is, is, is from a working class kind of mining background from the northeast. And so between the two of them, they knew that education was the way out and that it, it, it has to it has to allow you to move into um an area that is at least more manageable than than working class jobs and, and a working class life um so that was an absolute necessity and it just so happens that literature um and visual art as, as two forms are some of the most one understanding and forgiving of multiple perspectives which makes you feel like you are worthy to join them and worthy to get involved in them but also that they really give you the tools to be able to understand your own identity and also the identities around you um I think they feed really really the arts in particular feeds into that kind of practical empathy that, that idea that you can make real tangible change through practical methods and understanding combined and I think literature was one of those things that was absolutely kind of uh, fundamental to, to being able to carry on that that sense of belonging even though you come from a really working class background moving into something that's much more middle class. Great thank you there's so much to unpack there and so much I empathize with that sense of uh, your father being really working class in his roots and struggling to read and write. My father had a really similar relationship with education. He left home at 12. Uh, and yet, like your father was incredibly supportive of my getting an education and going to university because like your parents, they too were aware that that was kind of your passport out of your class if you were a working class person. Uh, I love that phrase you used, art is forgiving of multiple perspectives. And so you felt like it could have space for you as a working class person. Uh, and there was that beautiful phrase, too, about practical empathy. I think so many working class men I know and working class people I work with in schools think of making or consuming art as something impractical and the opposite of doing. But maybe that's because we're taught to align arts with pretension and that notion that all art has to explore big ideas to be art. Uh, so I tell lots of the young people I work with as working class students in schools, that I teach writing to that 
uh, writing plays is like building houses, if you like. You're making a structure out of words instead of bricks. And like building that creative process can be mucky and labour intensive and earthy. Mm, absolutely. I think it's, it's a really, uh, I like that you use the term earthy. It's a really earthy set of um, kind of areas to to be in uh, the kind of the arts in general music literature and maybe not music as much just because it's quite a laddie environment if you've ever been in in that kind of music environment but um but if definitely literature and the visual arts they've they've got a real kind of um down in the dirt grassroots feel and they can at least anyway they can be lofty and, and they can be um intellectual but they can also be you know really small workshops and writing groups for people who are straight out of prison or you know they can be really um kind of practical in how they move things forward socially um and socioeconomically and all of those things it doesn't necessarily just have to be art for art's sake and more often than not it isn't yes i think what stops lots of young working class people i work with kind of engaging with arts is that they feel that if they're not going to be brilliant at it, then they can't do it for fun. I think they've internalised that mentality in schools that if you have a talent, then you must compete in that field and you must win awards for the school and try to be the best at it. And that culture stops lots of young people, working class people, everybody, if you like, taking up artistic endeavours simply as hobbies. I mean, it always strikes me that so many people will run for fun uh, without ever thinking, I want to be Linford Christie but so many people won't engage with artistic endeavours for fun because they fear they're not going to be Shakespeare or Picasso, and so what would be the point? And I think if schools stress that mentality more, that uh, creativity, artistic endeavour is exercise for the mind, if you like, then more people might be encouraged to pursue artistic endeavours as hobbies. So let's chat now about what studying English at uni gave you and how it might have affected your relationship with gender and yourself and your relationships in your 20s? Well it definitely gave me a kind of chat book of people to read and to look into to give me perspectives especially on on masculinity and how I deemed masculinity because I fell in love with the romantics and um, I was up in sort of Lancaster in the Lake District and reading a lot of kind of Byron Shelley, Keats, Wordsworth, all of those kind of really um, florid masculine voices and how they navigated the world in in a really revolutionary era um, really changed my perspective on what masculinity is, uh, what gender is, how you define it. Um, and there's some real great kind of feminist readings of, of those poets and, and that kind of era that, that really changed the way that I think about what it is to be masculine and what what it is that is good about masculinity um, and what's really beneficial and I think um, that really really fed into um, understanding that because toxic masculinity came out as a phrase around a similar time it really came into the zeitgeist and so we were really looking as a, as a generation of people looking at elements of masculinity that have been quite oppressive not only for women but for men and I was looking at that and looking at those behaviors and seeing that in the kind of lad culture that you get at university and all of that um but also and looking at the really beautiful fantastic kind of masculine qualities that you had from from really empathetic poets in that era um so that really kind of guided me in the direction of understanding this whole other 
area of masculinity that I hadn't necessarily been able to put the language to before. And it suddenly explained a lot of the people that I'd grown up with, a lot of the really working class people, um, men that I'd grown up with. And it made me their revolutionary kind of feel and the way they spoke about things and that kind of guttural um, kind of want for oppression to stop and when you have that from dating back all the way to the romantics to now it's something that hasn't gone away you still have revolutionary young voices um and people that want to make change and and yeah that that really honed in on some some real great masculine figures um from history for me i think so i'm really struck by you mentioning romantic poets there and that idea of uh when do you think men went from being florid, demonstrative, wearing their hearts on their sleeves to being so undemonstrative and not really talking about their feelings? Yeah, I think I think it started to come around in sort of the end of the Victorian era and the really start of the sort of Georgian and into your, your World War One and World War Two territory. Um, I think it was I think it was a real backlash to industrialization and to uh, there being a real sense of oppression for the working classes in a way that had been very different to what it was before uh, a working class young man in the Victorian era would have had a much different experience to that of 150 years before it was much more about being a cog in a machine and being um being disposable have being a disposable male and I think that's something that we're still feeding off today I think we've still got this real sense that um that working class males are are disposable they're your army fodder they're your they're your working man they're your miners they're your and it feeds into the perspective of uh, just get on with it because you are just a cog um so i think that's really what changed it i think um yeah industrialization and and sort of our big wars were were really what changed um what it meant to be be a young man i think Thank you very much. I'm so struck by that notion that working class men today might be undemonstrative about feelings and uh, think they're unworthy of a voice because they've internalised that cultural idea that as working class men, they're disposable or cannon fodder or cogs in a machine. Uh, Massively. And I think it really feeds into some of the the perspectives that we're seeing and that we're worried about in modern society. I think when we really fear... Um, those kind of far right movements or um those those kind of quite oppressive movements they're normally young working class men who don't feel like they have a voice they don't understand that they have a voice or that they are equal and 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 they feel disposable and it's a it's a lack from from a time that went before and that applies to everyone that identifies with masculinity that that's nothing to do with um, what sex you are, what not not sex, not what sexuality you are. Um, I think it applies just as much to um, you know a gay a gay man as much as a, as a straight man um, because it's something that's come through several generations of just just being a working class man is not it's not it doesn't give you the tools to be able to do anything useful or that's what you're sort of told and that's what history tells us. It's fine if you're um, you know, middle class or upper class and, and a male. But if you're working class, you, you, you're just here to serve a purpose. And I think we are still reeling off of that. And that perspective is what 
has the misinformed um, areas of society um, really kind of growing. It's because that that feeling hasn't gone away, despite the fact that we're moving forward and ahead in in our kind of social justice um, in in areas that we're looking at. It, it's difficult. It's 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 a really hard thing to change that kind of level of inbuilt kind of not trauma but inbuilt oppression that you don't think of because it's not as, as I said at the beginning it's not as clear-cut as uh, entire groups of enslaved peoples or you know it's much more insidious it's much more um just flippant it's a disregard rather than uh clear-cut absolute horrible oppression um so we don't necessarily look at it in the same way as much anymore I think this is a really, really hard question now, but drawing on that experience you have of thinking about intersectionality and masculinity and class within that world of arts administration, what do you think we can do to help abate those working class men's feelings that they're disposable and unworthy of a voice? Mm, I think, well, mainly talking to people is one of the biggest ones. And I think it's difficult. Civil discourse is a, is a really hard uh, sort of area at the moment. But the more we can do it and the more we can discuss these things with people that we might not speak to, uh, the more we can move forward. And I think if, if somebody's feeling that they, they, they do feel disposable and they don't feel like they have a place, speak to the people around you, get that reassurance, get that understanding that you do have a purpose. There are also just just great things that you can get involved with. And I think knowing that you have um, a kind of a social significance and knowing that you feed into the social significance of the time that you're living, um, even by doing minor things, even if it's, you know, volunteering at a soup kitchen once every three weeks or something tiny, um, knowing that that gives you a purpose is is going to help you move forward it's it's a tough one because I think we're all searching for meaning and we're all searching for a sense of uh identity but I think the the big thing for um particularly working class men of all races at the moment is being told to shut up it's being told you don't have a voice because there are people who have been oppressed for too long that should have more of a voice than you right now and I completely understand that but I also think being able to have that civil discourse with people will help you to acknowledge how you can feed into not only your own sense of oppression, but other people's sense of oppression, how you can move past that for the both of you. Um, so I think it's just I think it's just discussion. I think it's just being able to speak to people from all walks of life and and really listen and really, really, really listen. Um, it, it, it's it's one of the best ways to move forward, I think. Um, I do think moving into, uh, I was going to sort of segue back into stoicism because I really thought of stoicism before as as a, a toxic masculine thing, but coming back to it as a, an older adult, I've looked into it a lot more and it's, it's an area of, um, you know, change the things that you can and forget the things that you can't um, and knowing that you have the power and control over certain elements of your life and that you can have that kind of practical empathy for yourself and your own existence um, to change the way that you're thinking about a situation. And I think that's a big thing that is useful to people that are feeling like they don't fit in anywhere, because you can then start to look at the areas that don't serve you and not feel a connection to them anymore. You can disregard them and, and move on and find move into areas that are more useful to you.
um yeah that that is yeah it's a tough one it's a tough one because like I say we're all I think we're all wanting to to find a way to feel like we fit and that we have we have a our, our tribe or our identity that we can fit with um but uh it yeah it's it's navigating through life <laughs> thank you so much I think there's some gold in terms of advice in that response so many people stress the importance uh of men talking to each other openly is the principal way of abating those negative feelings surrounding masculinity and as I've said in previous episodes I really hope that these podcasts might prompt listeners to start those conversations mm, and that's where intersectionality comes in it's when we can really see the differences that have shaped our perspectives and know that it doesn't necessarily make one or the other perspectives bad is 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 going to help people feel more at one and help people feel more like they fit um and yeah i think i think that's being able to discuss these things is is one of the best things that we can do that feels like a really empowering note to end on so freya gallagher jones thank you so much for being here brilliant thank you Thank you for listening. This has been Mantor, the Masculinity Conversations, brought to you by me, James McDermott, and Story Machine Productions, with music by Jordan Mallory Skinner and produced by Sam Ruddock. We're keen to talk to anyone who wants to share their experience of masculinity. If you would like to be featured in a forthcoming episode, drop us a line at storymachineproductions at gmail.com.